0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision.
1: Two very special guests and something of a triumph today for a big vision and a lot of hard work on the launch of a new book highlighting the history of Christian revivals in Australia. In fact, It's described as the most definitive catalogue of Australian revivals ever compiled. The unique thing about this new book is that it connects revivals in Australia's brief history, and let's do the calculation, only around about 234 years since colonisation. Of course, there's a... A First people's history that goes before that too, and they're not left out in the history of revivals in Australia. There's an historic context through the history of the church, and it goes way back to the book of Acts. Now, you might recall us talking about this book earlier this year. It's called Great Southland Revival, Tracing the Spirit's Flame from Acts to Australia. The two authors are Warwick Marsh and Kurt Mulberg. They say their book traces a journey on convict ships and city trams to goldfields, outback communities and far-flung islands transformed by the gospel. You may know these two names. Warwick and Kurt are at the helm of the Canberra Declaration. Warwick Marsh founded Dads for Kids. He co-founded the National Day of Thanks. He helped establish the National Day of Prayer and Fasting and with other faith leaders drafted the Canberra Declaration. Kurt Mulberg is research and features editor at the Canberra Declaration. He's the author of a book called Cross and Culture, Can Jesus Save the West? And Kurt is the co-editor and contributing author of The Blessing of Almighty God. Uh, both experienced authors and great leaders and people we should give thanks for. Warwick Marsh and Kurt Mulberg, Warwick, a special welcome to you. Great to be talking to Neil. And to you, Kurt, welcome along. Thanks so much, Neil.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: You know what? Let's start at the beginning, because for some listeners, they might have heard the word revival. Sometimes we've heard it talked about in our churches. Uh, Sometimes it seems like it's so distant and far off and something that seemed to happen in in another nation. But I wonder if we start with what we're talking about when we discuss revival. Kurt, what if I come to you? How, How do we describe what revival is? It's a great
2: question, Neil, and it's one that I guess Christians have various opinions on. And we go into um, that question in our introduction, which we've called Revive Us Again. Really, we don't land on a very specific definition of revival, but we do discuss some of the parameters of what you know, Christians generally agree on. So we would say that revival is something that really intensifies the spiritual life of the church. That's an obvious one. Um, but a, another obvious and very important one is that large numbers of people come to faith who previously were not Christians or were not part of a church. Um, and the other one that we really focus in on and probably we're most interested in in Great Southland Revival is the social change, the cultural change that comes about as a result of revival. Because, you know, really, Warwick and I believe that it's not really a revival if it doesn't bring about change in the culture. That's something we're very passionate about. That's something that ca- the Canberra Declaration is very focused on. And so, of course, that is something that we focus on a lot in this book, Great Southland Revival, as well, sort of social change.
1: Warwick, there's fruit of revival, isn't there? And uh, as Kurt says, uh, it can happen personally, it can happen in your community through your local church. And then the fruit of that going on to national change. This is the sort of thing you and Kurt have set out to be able to articulate uh, so that we can all participate in those things that have happened historically.
0: Absolutely, Neil. I mean, the word revival per se is not found in the Word of God. Uh, the, the, the 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 word revive is found numerous times, and the concept of being revived, if you like, awakened to Christ, be renewed, um, times of refreshing comes come from the presence of the Lord. They're all actually. In the scripture, of course, the whole idea of revival and reformation there is inherent right through the scriptures, as Curtis pointed out. So this book is dealing with the big picture of revival and the need for revival starting with us individually. And we have, as Curtis explained, we've tried not to be too specific because a lot of people, I think, have been specific. And it's a very hard thing to actually totally nail down Suffice to say, we've really concentrated on telling the stories of revival and let people make up their own minds as to what they think revival
1: is. Kurt, when we're talking Acts to Australia, uh, we're talking really that something that goes back just a little bit before uh, the book of Acts in the Bible. And I know you have an account of this in your new book, and uh, you really take this back to John the Baptist, because you've got these 400 years of silence, time a time between the Testaments, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of a sudden, uh, this uh, bedraggled, uh, different sort of a character, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he's the herald, he's the forerunner of Jesus and what we begin to experience here with John the Baptist is perhaps the way we might even think about how revivals might actually work. Any thoughts here about John the Baptist, a forerunner even to the Book of Acts? Yeah, look,
2: John the Baptist is a fascinating character. Uh, We're told that when he arrives on the scene, there are multitudes that come out to hear him preach, and uh, many follow him, listen to his teachings, and then many are baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so we get a bit of a picture in the accounts about John the Baptist of what revival looks like, because there are a lot of people who are all of a sudden interested in spiritual things, coming to faith, uh, a large movement of people, you know, finding salvation. Uh, But there's a really fascinating prophecy John the Baptist gives. He says, one who is greater than I is coming, and he will not just baptize you like I am, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And of course, we now know he was talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came on the scene very soon after, though. Only a few days later, he appears and John the, ba- John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And then Jesus really takes over the ministry that John the Baptist had started. And so we've got you know, the entire really account of all four Gospels in the life of Jesus. And then the book of Acts follows Jesus' death and resurrection and is the story of how the church goes from this cowering group of you know, disciples who are afraid and unsure and what's happened to our Savior, he's been nailed to the cross, but all of a sudden they realize he's, he's back to life again and now Jesus has commissioned them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem. And so the book of Acts certainly is the, the real sort of explosion of uh, revival in the New Testament, but it starts in the New Testament with John the Baptist, this fascinating character.
1: So you've got John the Baptist, the herald of the Son of God and then as you point out, wherever Jesus went he took revival with him because he had this presence of the Holy Spirit. He was himself God. And then we get to, uh, after the death and the resurrection and the ascension, uh, the Church of Believers waiting on God for something significant that would happen and Warwick Marsh uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, such a significant day, because uh, you could say revival is very, very obvious that this happened on the day of Pentecost with three thousand added to the church in one day.
0: Yeah, look, you definitely make the argument that uh, the the work of Jesus was uh, short. Piggins, Doctor Short Piggins points out uh, a you know it done in the midst of revival. It was an outpouring of the Spirit while. Um, Jesus was ministering and you know thousands and thousands would follow him and astounding miracles would occur and unusual events would happen and demons would come out. It was really quite a, a, a lot of holy chaos which reminds you of revival writings but yes the book of Acts arguably is the beginning if you like of modern day revival in the sense that it came upon the church as in it, it, Jesus had left the scene and said, "You know, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power," and that power um, actually drew people to Christ and also released the gospel, and released the good news in in the in the in the mouths of the apostles and ultimately in our mouths. And so, the the purpose of the outpouring of the Spirit slash revival is that people will come to know Jesus Christ, people will confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that's really probably our first. Um, uh, our first sort of, shall we say, um, grill, if you like, or first, you know, key point, what revival is. Well, yes, revival comes, and you feel better, and the, you know, people are in, in enthused, and people are encouraged. But it has to be about people coming to know Jesus Christ.
1: You mentioned historian Professor Stuart Peggin and he wrote the foreword to your new book, and he calls your book. The Divine Cure for a Deadly Sleeping Sickness. And uh, I know that we haven't got time to go over all of the revivals of history and even those ones from Acts up to uh, the colonization of Australia. So we're going to gloss over a lot of that. And I know that listeners, uh, well, we won't gloss over it completely. We'll touch on some of those things. But the thought that the church is in revival and then falls asleep And then it's in revival and then falls asleep. Or you might think of sleep and then awakening, sleep and then awakening. And uh, Stuart Pickens says the church is always falling sick with the sleep of death, that it needs to be shaken periodically with great awakenings. Kurt, is this just a description of how the church has functioned since Acts to the present time? Look, I
2: think, Neil, we have to say historically that, yes, that is the case. And even if we don't particularly like that the church falls asleep and we'd rather that it's always awake and always on fire, that's a nice thing to want. And I agree that would be sort of an ideal scenario. But realistically, if we look back through the history books, it has very much been the case that, yes, the church in any part of the world really does have these periods of sleeping and apathy and Um, compromise and, you know, really just kind of following along with what the world's doing or not really tuned into the spirit of God. And then all of a sudden out of, sometimes out of nowhere, and we can talk a bit more about what the lead up to revival looks like later on, perhaps, but um, often it, you know, it, quite a surprise to the people who are involved in it. All of a sudden, there is this outbreak of revival. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are huge numbers of people coming to faith. There's miracles. And then, of course, societal change. And so realistically, we have to be honest and say that is definitely the pattern we see in church history. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. And so that's really the story we're trying to tell in Great Southland Revival.
1: Warwick Marsh, is there a whole lot of misconceptions in the hearts and minds of ordinary Aussies and even including people who are a part of our churches that somehow or other revivals in Australia mustn't have been real revivals, not like the Great Awakening in England and uh, in America and even a third awakening into Canada and what are your thoughts here? And was it for you when you were doing research for this book? Was it an eye opener even for you to see that there were so many amazing revivals that helped shape Australia?
0: Good question, Neil. Good question. Um,
1: I was. I remember going
0: to church as a young man. I was still. Uh, I was. I'd just come down to Wollongong, the Lighthouse Christian Centre, uh, where I was going to church, and a man got up to speak, and I would have been about seventeen years of age, and he said. Uh, Australia has never experienced a revival. Now I didn't know any better. I didn't know church history. I didn't know Australian history, so I, I believed him because I was a young guy and he was an old bloke, and I thought he would knew what he was talking about. But looking back, it was a profound lie. It, it, that, that man had had actually articulated a profound lie because Australia hasn't just experienced one revival. It's, it's experienced dozens and dozens of revival. In fact, I was talking to Stuart Piggin about this because I'm one of these people who like to try to pin it down and I do note that there's definitely waves of revival. Arguably in 1739, 1740, 1741, there was the awakening in England uh, with Charles Wesley, John Wesley and uh, Whitfield and that then spread to America and that, that also occurred under Jonathan independently under Jonathan Edwards' ministry in, uh, in New England at, at the same time um and and those similar revivals were occurring in Mar- uh, you know in Germany at the same time. So there's definitely specific time periods of revival. but from the point of view of Australia, you could argue that Australia experienced successive waves of revival from approximately 1839, 1840, and even a little bit earlier perhaps, but certainly 1839, 1840 right through uh, until the early 1900s um and ongoing um yes there was times there was lulls but there was it was more like constant almost like just wave upon wave upon wave of the holy spirit's outpouring mainly through the methodist church mainly through methodist lay preachers and a lot of it occurred in outback australia but it did also occur actually in in the big city so i was Sort of aware of this, but certainly the, you know the research of this book, from which I might add, as my colleague Kurt has been the, the the primary driver of doing a lot of research, pulling this together. He he really did the hard yards on this. Um, but certainly I I'd actually had delved into um, you know Australian revival history, reading um, people like um, you know Barry Chance's Heart of Fire, back in the in the, in the mid mid seventies, late seventies, and that really sort of got me going. And then, of course, Stuart Tiggin has been done some great work, and another revival historian, probably Australia's greatest revival historian, just only just passed away about uh, four, 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 four weeks ago, and that was the Reverend Robert Evans, the United Church minister from the Blue Mountains, and he he's written about thirty books, Neil, thirty books about uh, revival in Australia and also the islands and New Zealand, and experience, Australia's experienced massive amount of revival. Would you say that's correct, Kurt?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I fully agree with what you said, Warwick, about successive waves. I think if, if anything, we identify probably three peaks of revival in Australian history, and this isn't to say that there weren't revivals between them, there certainly were, but the three major ones um, that we see are 1859 to 1860, and that was really in conjunction with the Third Great Awakening, what, what people often call the Third Great Awakening, which was happening in America and England and many other parts of the world. Australia was very much part of that, and the Holy Spirit sovereignly was at work doing the same sorts of things in Australia as, as in other parts of the world. So it was often called the Union Prayer Movement locally, so people would meet in town halls and churches, and there was just huge amounts of prayer and, and essentially just this really big um, Australian awakening that happened in, in that period of time, 1859 to 1860. The second one would have been uh, 1902, 1903, uh, 1904, and that was with Reuben Torrey. He was an evangelist and a minister from Chicago. He came out. uh, He was at the Moody Bible Institute. He was invited out by many praying Australians, and he did a a massive campaign in Melbourne, and also there were, at the same time, simultaneous missions taking place in Sydney and in the Illawarra and all within a period of really a, a couple of years, there was just huge amounts of revival taking place um, in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, many, many people come to faith. And then the third major awakening that Australia saw was, of course, under Billy Graham, and that was in, uh, he came out several times to Australia, but it was his, 18, his 1959 uh, tour, 18, I think it was 1958 and 59, um, his tour around many cities in Australia saw huge numbers of people come to faith. And as uh, Warwick and I, I mean, Warwick's got his own story about um, his experience of the Billy Graham crusade, but certainly in my interactions with people from that sort of generation, I often ask people, I love asking people, how did you come to faith? And when I ask people, you know, in that sort of age bracket, how did you come to faith? The vast majority of people have answered me, well, it was through a Billy Graham crusade. So there are, I think, you know, there's a living testimony to, to that most recent major awakening that, that Australia experienced still, you know, happening today.
0: Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision.
1: Let me open talkback lines too. You might like to join into our conversation today. Uh, you might have a question, you might have a comment, you might even have a critique. Well, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Our special guests, Warwick Marsh and Kurt Mulberg. They're releasing their book, Great Southland Revival. Tracing the Spirit's Flame from Acts to Australia... Uh, Let me come to you, uh, this uh, question here, Kurt, Uh, I said just before the break, let's hear some cities and some towns and uh, some of the regions around Australia where uh, perhaps listeners today are listening from and uh, they might have their own roots that go back into those revival experiences. How can we list a whole bunch of places where revivals have broken out as those spot fires around Australia?
2: Yeah, with some of the early ones uh, in our chapter that deals with really the first major revivals that happened on Australian soil, um, places like Mudgee, so this is kind of country, New South Wales, uh, Windsor, also out in the country in New South Wales. Um, lots of revivals took place in the Illawarra, so places like uh, Wollongong and uh, towns, the, the suburbs of Wollongong, um, a tiny village of Dapdai, I don't even know if it goes by that name anymore, but there was a revival in Dapto, which oh, is it's in Wollongong. Dapdai, yeah. Yep. And uh, Parramatta, um, there was a big revival under John Watson in Parramatta. Uh, that was in, uh, in the, about 1840, I think it was. Um, uh, Hawkesbury River, a number of towns along there. Um, so really, at, at that stage, we're only talking probably 40 years or so after the first fleet arrived. And so a lot of these places at that point still were only villages. But there already there were revivals taking place uh, in those areas. And then, of course, we've got um, a lot of revivals happened in gold mining and coal mining communities. So in South Australia, where I'm from personally, um, places like Burra and Kapunda and uh, also Moonta, a lot of revivals took place in that area. In fact, so many revivals took place in what they call the Copper Triangle, which is between a lot of those um, gold mining and coal mining towns in north of Adelaide that, Stuart Piggan he calls that the burned-over district, which is a term actually that used to apply to New York State where Charles Finney ministered. And so many revivals had come through that he called it the burned-out district. Well, um, you know, they actually contend, this is Piggan and Linda who write these major histories of Australia, they say that the burned-out district in Australia would be north of Adelaide in um, in a community. Now you go through and it's really the outback and there's not huge populations there. But back then there were... You know, over a thousand people coming to faith in just, you know, a a couple of weeks or a couple of months in the revivals that took place there. Uh, Warwick, you might be able to name a few more.
0: Yeah, look, uh, Kurt, I was just down in Mildura preaching at a church, Diggerland, uh, Diggerland Church in um, Redcliffe's just a suburb of Mildura, and I was talking about the book, actually, and some of the people there were talking about their relatives uh, in and around Mildura and a place called Kirang, which is... Uh, on the Murray um, about sort of 150 K's east of Mildura on the Murray and you know there was revivals there yuchuka there was a revival in, that, that um, touched the Aboriginal community there uh, I've just come back from central Australia um, where I went to visit the cross which has just been put up it's not open to the public but um, I went there to visit it and just to pray um, and you know revival uh, there was a our, our book tells the story, which is obviously a better told. If you want the full details, go to read John Blackett's book, Fire in the Outback. But I was preaching out there, actually in Alice Springs. Uh, Kurt, a very interesting experience, um, Neil, um, and I was just sharing the story of the 1979 outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Elko, and the Elko people, indigenous people, went, got hit by the power of God. Uh, the whole, Almost the whole island came to Christ. Um, the The, 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 the people stopped fighting. The, 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 they could had to give, almost give their liquor away because the, the people would stop drinking, thank God. And um, those people went down to Alice Springs for the Australian, first Australian Aboriginal Convention. They shared the gospel. People came across from Warburton in Western Australia, which is an outback uh, community. It's not too far from the West Australian, South Australian border. And those people invited the people from Elko. They came down there and... Um, Uh, The Robertson brothers came to Christ. They then took the gospel right, well, that that whole community completely changed. It was one of the most uh, dysfunctional Aboriginal communities in Australia, and this was in 1979, 1980, and it was completely revolutionized. The Robertson brothers took the gospel through the Mecathara. The pubs were literally giving the grog away, and the (laughs) the Aboriginal people wouldn't drink it because they'd come to Christ, and they were... Uh, there was no, no more violence and no more um, problems. The, the police, uh, police were basically doing nothing. The judges were having a uh, extended holiday, thank God, because of this revival. But that revival then went into um, other towns in West Australia and it went right through up into Kimberley's and it was seen on national TV a number of times. And there was a guy there physically who shared the story, Kurt, of the, um, how they needed people in outback... Uh, in outback Western Australia near Wilburton. they wanted to baptize a hundred people. It was it was a desert. There's no water. There's no rain, and so they cried out to God, and God did a miracle and poured, <laughs> brought the rain down. And he was one of those guys who was there. He, he actually saw the miracle. He said it rained, and it, it just only rained in the area where the where the catchment was for that creek. So it was a very narrow rain band, and he was actually on national on National sixty Minutes TV. So you know, we're not only uh, actually, you know, telling the story, but we're actually hearing the story firsthand from witnesses who were actually uh, at those events.
1: We're taking calls. Let's squeeze one in before news. Shelby in Brisbane. Welcome along, Shelby.
2: Good morning, Neil. Love the show, buddy. Um, yeah, buddy, um, I t- uh, I've, it's amazing what I'm listening to and what I'm hearing. And I miss the Billy Graham uh, uh, crusades, but... Um, uh, I have uh, a couple of Billy Graham books and one in particular is Billy Graham God's Ambassador and uh, it's a fantastic book, um, on, uh, it's a picture book mo- a, a lot and a tribute
0: in the sense of all his work with presidents as well as uh, in Australia and um, yeah, it's just great to hear the show and uh, listen to what's uh,
2: uh, being said. Shelby, I,
1: I, I, I missed the gentleman's name. Okay, we've got uh, Warwick and Kurt. Uh, but Shelby, you raise an important point here. Uh, you might have missed the 1959 Crusade, and probably most people miss that. There'll be some who uh, were, uh, you know, went forward uh, for a, to pray a sinner's prayer at those revivals. But the profile of Billy Graham grew, and. His books carry something of the Billy Graham type of a message of the gospel. There's what happened with the raising of his profile and the fact of the Billy Graham Crusades being the closest thing we've had to a national revival. Uh, Your thoughts here, Kurt, very quickly, uh, the fact that there is fruit from the books that are written and the profile that's raised, those things continue to even bear fruit today.
2: Absolutely they do and uh, in some ways perhaps Warwick is a better um, person to ask this question to because he um, was one of the people that went forward at the 18, the, 18 19, <laughs> he's not that old, 1959 Billy Graham crusade and Warwick himself has been in ministry now for many decades and uh, he tells a bit of that story in the book um, Warwick does in Great Southland Revival but I'm sure Warwick's only one of dozens maybe hundreds of people who were saved at a Billy Graham crusade and have gone on to Uh, minister themselves and see many more people come to faith so certainly billy graham's uh, profile grew he published books he was on the radio and on tv and so his ministry continued but his ministry also continued in another way which was through the people who were saved at those crusades that he ran in australia
1: let's take a call before we move our conversation forwards uh warwick and kurt let's hear from elaine in adelaide in south australia hi elaine welcome
0: oh thank you thank you, gentlemen. Uh, recently, a church here in Adelaide um, purchased a church at Moonta, Moonta Mines, and they uh, found documents uh, underneath the uh, uh, in 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 the church itself. They found documents relating to the revival, and to uh, to uh, uh, apparently um, uh, Smith Wigglesworth was here preaching and. Yes, I learned learned a great deal about the early revival in Moonta that was spread right across the Rooda
1: Elaine, that is just wonderful information to bring to light, uh, that there are documents that were hidden away somewhere in an archive, uh, back in a storage shed or, you know, a a room that rarely ever gets entered into. And uh, let's get a thought or two perhaps here from Warwick. This must be a fairly regular thing. There must be a lot of documentation that's hidden away, uh, just like Elaine is saying, in lots of church uh, archives. Yeah, look... um a lot of revival history, and thank you Elaine for your comment,
0: uh, has been hidden uh, because it's well, it's just not being published abroad uh, in accessible format. What, if you as you noted at the beginning of this um, introduction, now is that this is probably the most broadest uh, and succinct um, analysis of revival in Australia from the beginning of Australia right through to the current period. There's other books that have delved into certain sections a lot more exhaustively. But what what we've tried to do, Kurt and myself, is we have tried to actually tell the story and sort of analyse and try to capture the key parts of the different stories. Because, you know, you're talking about hundreds of books, literally, that we have been drawing from to write this particular book. But this certainly is the most um, succinct, if you like, in one book format story of revival from Australia, and yes, a lot of it has been in church uh, archives. It's also in the press. It's very interesting, and Kurt can back me up on this, but the Australian press, uh, right for the last 200 years, actually covered revival stories in the church, even down to how many people came to Christ and what actually happened in the church services. You can find that in the secular press in their archives uh, through the 1800s and right through the 1900s, and the Billy Graham revival revival slash crusades in 59 were covered by the press quite extensively. And, um, you know, that's the case, isn't it, Kurt?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we're, I guess we're quite uh, used to thinking of the press as being hostile to Christians and to Christianity, which these days I'd say very much is the case. But that wasn't always the way. And, you know, uh, it's only really only a, probably four or five decades since that that shift has taken place. And as Warwick has said, yeah, a lot of the amazing revivals that took place, the work of the Holy Spirit was documented in uh, secular newspapers. Um, the other one, Elaine, I love that you've shared what you did about the archives at Munta. Um The other one that it often was published in when a revival took place was in Methodist magazines, uh, denominational magazines. It was often a Methodist because they had a lot of fruit when it came to revivals in Australian history. But uh, denominational magazines, they just tell stories um, to share throughout the country to encourage other believers. You know, this weekend, this is what happened in our church and this is what happened in other parts of the country. So, yeah, the, the primary resources, there are so many. The problem is not many people have compiled them. So like Warwick said, we tried to sort of put together just one long story Uh, We're just sort of dipping our toes in the water on all the really big events that took place in Australian history in this book.
1: Elaine, thank you so much for just venturing to the phone to pick it up and uh, make that suggestion that, you know, there are all sorts of documents that can be uncovered. And uh, I think you might spark something. There might be an awful lot of people listening in right now who are thinking, well, I might go through my church archives. It's been around a long time. We might find out what happened with revivals in our community. Maybe... Even though there are hundreds of books that uh, Kurt mentions that they've gone through uh, to just glean the details, there might be hundreds more yet to be written on all those revivals. Elaine, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let me come back to something that's really important here. And uh, Warwick Marsh, the gospel getting to Australia in the first place... Uh, names like William Wilberforce and uh, Richard Johnson, our very first chaplain on our shores here. These are the sorts of names that come to mind. But it was uh, it was a, an amazing thing just how the gospel got here. Yes, it, it's it's quite fascinating, um,
0: and we we did rely a lot on I guess our primary um, how would you say it? Our primary source has been Dr. Stewart because uh, his work has been you know he's obviously a professor of history arguably the greatest Christian historian of the, of the last you know 100 years um, and we looked at the, um, the the first fleet really was a product of revival in England in the in especially the, the awakening in uh, 1739 1740 which continued under John Wesley. Um, I think he died in eighty nine from memory, um, seventeen eighty nine, and the first leak came out in seventeen eighty eight, and that really was quite revolutionary because the whole idea that of giving uh, convicts a new start was something that actually Wesley and uh, the, the people like Wilberforce and many of his um, Wesley's disciples were actually fighting for a fair go for prisoners, don't let them rot in the hulks in, in England and the Thames. Uh, and these old boats that were just full of rats and quite hot, terrible diseases. Uh, let's give these people a new start. Let's give them the opportunity, and let's even pardon them. If they give us a one or two years' good behaviour, let's pardon them and set them free. So this was actually a concept of grace. The other thing, interesting thing is to understand is that Captain Arthur Phillip in 1788, now slavery was not outlawed for another 40 years, 30, 40 years, he said, I will have no slaves in this new colony in, in New South Wales. I will have no slaves. This is a slave-free uh, experiment, and we will also tra- treat the, uh, the convicts humanely. And they, the, the, the ships were all new. Uh, they had minimum loss of life on the journey. Uh, they actually arrived in good health. In fact, they actually, they'd actually put more weight on the journey than they'd, than they'd um, left with. So people were actually healthy and looked after in those early days by the um, by the the, 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 the plea of officers that were in charge and so it was an incredible experiment but it was actually a holy experiment in forgiveness and grace and also um, you know releasing Johnson come out and getting Johnson Richard Johnson who was by uh, called a Moravian Methodist and so there's a de- deep linkage to the Moravians in the settling of Australia
1: back to you Kurt, when we're hearing about this sort of thing, it's so refreshing to hear because I know that lots of listeners might be aware that there were other nations that were circling Australia and they hadn't uh, ventured forth to set up a colony here and of course it's all very controversial of course uh, with uh, First Nations peoples even talking through these sorts of things but uh, lots of those other nations that were circling here and perhaps uh, could have colonised Australia were into uh, the slave trade in a huge way. So to hear of the likes of William Wilberforce who saw Australia as a gospel outpost, uh, the impetus for major prison reform, non-slave-oriented. That's a refreshing thing, isn't it?
2: I think so, Neil. I mean, yes, many of the nations that were circling Australia were nations like France and Spain, Uh, some of whom you know some of these nations did practice terrible slavery for many decades even up to a century after the settlement of australia so it very much could have been the case that the indigenous people of australia and the anyone who was brought to australia could have ended up being slaves and australia could have been a slave-ridden country or slavery-ridden country Uh, but instead it was britain that settled australia and of course the past uh it's not perfect there are a lot of mistakes that were made and i think more than ever before we're aware of what those many mistakes were both towards the Indigenous people and even treatment of convicts. It was revolutionary for its time, but it was, by today's standards, still quite inhumane. Uh, But it, it was a great blessing that it was Britain that settled Australia because it meant no slavery. Uh, And it meant uh, incredibly humane treatment by the standards of the day for those who came out as convicts. And really, um, we talked a little bit about Wilberforce. He was famous for essentially helping abolish slavery. He was the biggest driver of the abolition of slavery in Britain. And he only saw that take place at the very end of his life after a whole lifetime career in Parliament fighting for this. But one of the things that he intended for Australia is he wanted it to be an outpost for the gospel in the South Seas, in the South Pacific. He had a real heart for all of these nations. There was an awareness at that time of how many nations in the Pacific uh, existed and did not know Christ. And he said, let's send uh, chaplains to Australia. Let's make sure that this colony that we're setting up as a nation uh Actually, there is a presence for the gospel uh, that makes sure the indigenous people get to hear about Jesus, the convicts get to hear about Jesus, the sailors, everyone who, who's there gets to hear the gospel. But also from there, as a launching pad, this new colony in Sydney is going to be a launching pad for the gospel into the South Sea. That was his intention. And if you actually look at what happened, we document this in, in um, one of the last chapters of our book. Um, we, we call it Let the Islands Rejoice. William Wilberforce's vision for that was fulfilled. Missionaries from Australia and from Britain using Sydney as an outpost reached those islands. And in a very short period of time, within decades, most of these islands actually came to faith. And when I say these islands, I mean the majority of the population came to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And it, it is just an incredible thing to see that that vision, which was held you know, from the 18th century, really did come to fruition.
1: Let me just touch on something really important here, because it was pretty tough in those early days of colonization. Uh, Things were not easy. Uh, I mean, the whole colony nearly failed at one point. But when we get to the likes of Governor Lachlan Macquarie, uh, who's considered to be the father of Australia, and you write about him in your book, he was a devout Christian, and Lachlan Macquarie established Bible-based education for the colonists believing it was going to be the key to progress and civilization and so he was also remembered as being very sympathetic uh, and his policies around aboriginal people and despite some failings of course on that front uh, macquarie promoted morality marriage and church attendance and set free and set free a record number of convicts with the aim that they live law-abiding Christian lives and become models for social reform, just uh, quoting out of your book here. Uh, so uh, when we talk about the likes of personalities, characters, uh, and the likes of the governor, uh, Lachlan Macquarie, you've got real teeth here where the values and principles of Christianity really do begin to shape the nation, Warwick.
0: Yeah, look, it, um you know, Lachlan Macquarie was a very devout uh, believer. So was his wife. They promoted um, Bible studies. They promoted the Bible. Um, I think they helped him found the Bible Society here in Australia. Um, I mean, it's it's really very hard for us to imagine um, the 1800s. Um, the 1800s were, were a period, as I said earlier, of constant revival, wave upon wave of revival. There was actually, I live in Wollongong in the in the Illawarra, just south of Sydney, and there was a recorded revival in 1830, 1832 here uh, at DAPTO uh, as a Marshall Mount, as Kurt was um, alluding to earlier in the conversation. Um, but, you know, Macquarie was at the helm at that point. And he was encouraging the church. Uh, the only form of education was Christian education because there was no such thing as government education because the government didn't provide education. Only only Christians provided education. Um, you know, so essentially the whole education system was actually built on the scriptures. Um, you know, the, 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 so many of our writers, so many of our thinkers were, were deep men of faith. Um, and Kurt uh, also tells a story a bit later in the book about the 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 Labor Party the Labor Party of Australia was actually extremely and it was the first time I think that Labor won government anywhere in the world was actually in Australia a very devout Christian party fighting for having Sundays off fighting for people not to be a slave uh, working you know ridiculous hours but having time for their family and some sort of sanity and some sort of fairness with wages and so on and so forth so you know so much of Australian history even the right to vote for women in South Australia, it, it, you know, South Australia in the early 1890s passed a vote giving women the not only the right to vote but the right to be in Parliament. One of the very first jurisdictions in the world to do so. Why? Well, that was a, that was a lot to do with those Munter revivals and those incredible revivals that had occurred in the latter part of the 1800s in Adelaide and up in the mining areas of South Australia, which had affected so affected the the city that it became known as the city of churches, still to this day it's called that. And again, it goes back to those credible revival uh, history. Any comments from you, Kurt, on that?
2: Oh, yeah, look, I I fully agree. Uh, The the right for women to vote. Also, another one that um, was really influenced by revival, another value that we appreciate today in Australia, is rights for Indigenous Australians. Again, you know, this is our our history as Australia is far from perfect and it reaches way into the 20th century when uh, Indigenous people were were still treated as second-class citizens. And that was the case uh, among secularists and people who didn't really have an interest in faith and certainly some Christians are to blame as well. But if you see the, uh, the green shoots of equality, equal treatment, um, dignity for Indigenous people, care for their communities. Those green shoots, almost all of them came out of Christians and not just normal, ordinary, you know, kind of Sunday peer Christians, but Christians who had been enlivened by revivals. And so we can 't even imagine what Australia would look like today if it weren't for the revivals that took place the people who were transformed by them and the care that they extended to indigenous Australians so really every aspect of you know the things that we appreciate today about Australia if you do an honest uh, tracing of where those um, where those green shoots came from it was uh, in so many cases from revivals that Absolutely transformed our country.
1: So you have the eighteen hundreds. Uh, that hundred years, eighteen to the to uh, the turn of the century, nineteen hundred. Uh, You've got an amazing century there. But uh, the revivals that you describe as like spot fires, they began to intensify. And in those decades in the lead up to 1900, uh, the time of uh, federation and the formation of our constitution, uh, this is uh, an important fruit to recognise out of revival here. And uh, Warwick, when we talk about the Australian constitution, um, those elements of that that are just obviously Christian in the way that they, they form uh, the way a nation's values are. These are attributed to the gospel and to revival. Absolutely,
0: Neil. Um, you've got to understand, we talk about these waves of revival, uh, 1860, 1870, 1880s, 1890s, were, we're incredible periods of, of, of growth. Uh, and as you said, spot fires coagulated, and there was a, definitely a strong outpouring of the spirit of God. Very, very distinct outpouring of the spirit of God in 1901, 1902, 1903, 1904, which predated, by the way, the Welsh revival in 19, 1904. Um, but getting back to your comment about the constitution, there was no argument that God would be included in the constitution. In fact, the constitution would not be. We wouldn't have the document unless God was included. Such was the feeling amongst people. 96% of people said that they um, they were Christian in the, in the census in uh, 1901, number one. Number two, uh, the, the church attendance was probably somewhere around 50 to 60% of people went to church, right? Massive amount of people. These days it's probably around the 10 15% of people go once a month. Well, back then it would have been sort of, I'd say, between 50 to 70% of people went to church once a month back in those days. Um, And many went every week uh, absolutely without fail. So the argument was not whether God should be included in the Constitution. The argument was how should God be included. And they came up with a very brilliant phrase, which I I want to remind our listeners today of. Humbly, it says in the preamble, so in the preamble to Australia's Constitution, it's still there today, It says, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God. Uh, These uh, said jurisdictions, these colonies, these states, unite together to form this nation under the blessings of Almighty God. So there was absolute unanimity on that inclusion, and I think that inclusion, by the way, is a brilliant wording because it gives all credit to God, it gives glory to God, and it shows that the faith of Australia was not in man, was not in the Queen even, with all due respect. I I believe that the the Queen was highly respected, and even today she's still highly respected. Of course, she only only passed away a little while while ago, and goodness me, the outpouring of love for her was just something to behold. But, you know, Australia actually had a greater respect for God. And, you know, we actually were were formed, our nation's constitution arguably was formed in the fires of revival. Any comments about that, Kurt? No, just to fully agree with you,
2: I think that period of Australian history, as we point out in the book, um, yeah, it really it was decades of revivals, and really probably the, one of the most intense periods of revival continually happening were happening just before the writing of the Constitution and Federation, and I, I believe you know the Holy Spirit was all over that. That was His intention for Australia. <laughs>
1: Wonderful insight and even into that framing of why we might have a constitution at all, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God. And I know that in your book uh, you actually do uh, talk about those human rights that are enshrined in our constitution and listeners will know uh, as soon as you hear uh, what they say, uh, section 41, the right to vote. Protection against unjust seizure of property, Section 51, and the right to trial by jury, Section 80, as well as all those implied rights like freedom of conscience, of speech, association and worship. Uh, all of those coming as the fruit of revival and those Christian ideals uh, that shape the way Australia is. Uh, Wonderful uh, insights today. I wish we had a whole lot more time. There's so much to cover when it comes to an historic way of talking about Christianity and Australia and uh, our revivals here. Uh, Let me just refer to one thing. I'm going to give listeners in a moment uh, the website uh, in which they can uh, get a copy of this new book, Great Southland Revival, Tracing the Spirit's Flame from Acts to Australia. I think, uh, I noticed on your website, Warwick, you've got, you know, you can buy multiple copies. You know, there's a cost per copy, but if you want five copies, 10 copies, 20 copies, uh, price goes down a little. And getting this book into the hands of people who are leading our churches and people who are interested in the future of Australia, this is going to be something important. You'd like to see people getting multiple copies. Look,
0: uh, it is Christmas. It will make a great Christmas present.
1: Um the list price
0: is thirty two ninety five, but you can buy it at our website at a reduced price of twenty nine ninety five. Now, if you buy two or three, the price drops down to twenty seven ninety five, 95 and if you buy it uh, in groups of ten or more, it's nineteen ninety five. Um, and you know, if you buy it by the box, um, it's $17.95. So really, we our dream. Uh, it's to get this book into the hands of as many people as possible. It's not about making money. Um, it's about actually getting the good news of Jesus Christ. And if God has done it once, he can do it again. And so I hope that this book will inspire people to pray for and believe God for revival and renewal and revitalization of Australia's Judeo-Christian values.
1: Uh, Kurt, is there a special website for the book, Great Southland Revival? Uh, I'm going to give the Canberra Declaration uh, address for listeners to go to get a hold of it. But is there a special website or is there one coming?
2: So the Canberra Declaration is the best place to get it. Um, So canberradeclaration.org.au. And uh, you might want to repeat that one in a minute uh, for us, Neil. But if you go to that website, the Canberra Declaration website, uh, you will find it under the Resources tab. So it's the top, the the top here under the Resources tab. Very easy to find. Um, that's yeah, just that's the Canberra Declaration website.
1: It is a triumph. It is the culmination of a lot of hard work, and uh, it is a book I know that you'll enjoy. And uh, even Professor Stuart Piggan says uh, when he writes the foreword, it's easier to read than what his foreword is because uh, he gets very technical and uh, and writes a great foreword, I might say, but. The website to get a hold of this new book, CanberraDeclaration.org.au. Uh, the authors of this new book, Warwick Marsh and Kurt Mulberg. The book is called Great Southland Revival, Tracing the Spirit's Flame from Acts to Australia. Uh, Warwick and Kurt, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and uh, your heart with us today on 2020.
0: Pleasure, Neil. Pleasure indeed. Thanks so much, Neil.
2: It's been great chatting to you.